Tonight's subject is important to me. How to keep your heart from wandering from God. Very few moments in a worship time will reach my heart because there is almost nothing I fear more. There's almost nothing I fear more in my own walk with Jesus than just uh, a gradual cooling, not yet manifested in some area of disobedience, but just a gradual change of disposition in my heart toward the Lord. Um, I find those words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O taken, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. When we sing that, I just, it's just a reflex with me that my hands go up and I, and I just, there's a level of earnestness in that prayer for me. You, you, can, you can wander in terms of a spiritual cooling without ever um, uh, being a liar or addicted to pornography or stopping attending church or quitting reading your Bible. So what I want to look at tonight is how to keep your heart from wandering from God. And I mentioned what we just sang. Let everything, let everything within me, let everything within me, let everything within me praise the Lord, we sang. The thought comes from Psalm 103, verse 1. We sang it almost word for word. Tom didn't know, I don't think, that this was the text. Bless the Lord, O my soul... And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Read that with me, would you? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I like the the modern, uh, albeit a bit cynical, saying, the paraphrase of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. Because if our redemption depended on a committee decision, we'd probably all still be lost in our sins. It's a hard thing. It's a very difficult thing to get a group, even a very good group, to move ahead in a united direction. Different heads have different thoughts, different ideas, different approaches, different fears, different concerns, different backgrounds. We bring all of that to the table whenever a group gets together. It's not easy to move as one. Look at marriage. Nowhere in our society is unity more important than in a marriage. And yet it's difficult to achieve. Romance is easy enough. But to take two minds and hearts and to make them Breathe as one. It it requires no small miracle. That's why we say, whom God, therefore, has joined together. A marriage license is needed to help cement a covenant because romance alone won't do the job in terms of bringing unity. The psalmist deals with a place now where unity is the most difficult of all. However difficult it is to achieve with other people, 
here's the place where it's hardest to achieve. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So you as a person, all of you, everything within you has to make the same decision to honor the Lord. There has to be inward unitedness, inward unanimity. And it's very easy to misread what that verse is about. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me isn't an issue of volume. Like, this is blessing the Lord, and this is blessing the Lord with everything in me. And that's not even close to what this is about. It's not volume. This is the psalmist saying that the decision to honor the Lord will probably be a a useless decision. Even if you think you mean it very sincerely, it will probably be useless in terms of gaining traction unless every distinct part of your being is going to be moving in the same direction. You, you, can't, you can't choose to honor him with most of your life. To choose to honor him with most of your life instead of all of your life is not to honor him at all. It's like telling my wife, you know, usually I sleep with her. There are very few other women in my life. Well, that's not likely to impress her. A partial decision to honor the Lord carries very little spiritual power. And I think this is a huge issue. This is what leaves many professing Christians with a faith that, in spite of their church going and their Bible reading and their praying, feels somehow um, a little bit unreal, a little bit hypocritical, a little bit anemic. And the remedy is in this life-changing little verse. Every part of my life must unite around the worshiping of the Lord the way bees unite around the queen bee. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's general. And then every particular part, that's analytical. All that is within me, let, let nothing be left out. Let nothing be missed. Let nothing be left behind in terms of what I am bringing to honor you. Won't work any other way. One part of my life offered to the Lord and worship on Sunday won't hold up a Christian faith any more than one leg will hold up a chair. If you and I work on just serving the Lord with some of our lives, we might as well not serve him with any. I don't mean that anyone does this perfectly. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about specifically choosing to neglect a part of the life in terms of bringing it into honoring the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. There's a lot within us, isn't there? We have knowledge... We have the accumulation of biblical data, Bible verses, teachings, accumulated information. 
We also have the capacity of will and choice in addition to knowledge. We're creatures of volition. Our lives don't just happen. We, we choose our way through this world. We're also made up of emotions. So we have knowledge, but we're not the same as computers or machines. We, we feel. We're drawn into things. We're repulsed by things. There's, there's an emotional quality. We have the capacity to, to be moved. We, there's anger. There's joy. There's sorrow. There's contentment. There's bitterness. There's greed. There's a host of other important, deeply felt reactions to this world around us. And we have desires. All of us. It's a mixture in your heart and mind. There are good desires and bad. Desires to honor Jesus. Desires to get rich. Desires to learn to pray. Desires to strike back at an enemy. Desires to be holy and humble. Desires to prove that we're right. We're full of these things. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually tells us that this world is in the mess it is in because of desires that rule and dominate and pull people and families and nations in wrong directions. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. We looked at this in my Christian education class when we went right through the book of Second Peter. Peter writes and says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What are the promises for? So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of a divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Why is the world corrupt? It's, it's, it's in here, folks. What's wrong with the world? At least let's be honest. I am. That's what's wrong with the world. And so all of this lives within us. Let everything within me bless the Lord. And so the psalmist recognizes that each one of these Elements needed to be united, brought together in in a unanimous pursuit of God's glory. Let everything that is within me unanimously join together to bless the name of the Lord. And here are the things I want to talk about. One, the will. The will must move in the same direction as the understanding. This is why, according to the Old Testament and then repeated by our Lord, I must love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and then these two things brought together, mind, knowledge, and strength, choice. Mind has to be linked to willpower. Thoughts alone don't take any strength. They just float around in your head. But living out all of that knowledge takes a great deal of exertion, takes a great deal of willpower, strength. Knowing the truth is never enough. The Bible says so. James 4.17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
Interesting, eh? You'd think he got 50% of it right. I know the right thing to do. We frequently do, don't we? You get that little voice in the back of your head, here's what you ought to do. But if you know what's right and then, and then there's no strength, the will doesn't come and say, well, then, then do it. If the will isn't united with what we know, let everything within me bless the Lord. If the will isn't brought to bear on the understanding, you don't get 50%. You're not half right. You become more blamable. So, I'm learning that the holy life doesn't work like a game show. Remember, when you could become a millionaire on TV just by knowing the correct answers to enough questions, phone a friend. Christian life isn't like that. It's not like that. This is no downplaying the importance of solid doctrinal theological truth. It's crucially important. But as important as that is, you get no points whatsoever just for knowing the truth. So the Christian life isn't a quiz show. James says people can have the right answers and live sinful lives. Look at David. David certainly valued the truth. I mean, he spent hundreds of verses, poems, songs, songs of worship. Well thought through, deeply principled, praising the beauty and wonder of the ways of God, the laws. Oh, how I love your laws. They are my meditation day and night. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold. This is not a theological lightweight. David spent a lot of time learning the truth of God's word. He said he meditated on it, but he, but he didn't just learn it. When he said, unite my heart to fear your name, that's another great verse. Let everything within me, same idea. He made that a matter of prayer. Psalm 37 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked, how they're cut off. Or Psalm 119, 104, 105, 106. Through your precepts, I get understanding. So there's the knowledge part. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word, your word is a lamp to my feet. Do you see knowledge? And then the feet, where, where am I going with my life? What are the choices I'm making? Where, where are the, where's this taking me? Lamp to my feet, light to my path. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. So David said God's precepts gave him understanding. Understanding is great. You can't do anything without that. But it's not enough. You're more than just a mind. You're also a will. The knowledge and understanding of God's laws and God's ways, it's for your feet. It's for your path. It's for where you're going. If you think I'm laboring the obvious, listen to these words from George Barna. 
It's a, it's a bit of a long quote. Let me just read it to you. He says, quote, Consider the following. 85% of all adults claim that religious faith is very important in their lives. 85%. Also, 85% claim to be Christians. More than four out of five adults claim to know the basic teachings of the Bible, and nine out of ten own at least one Bible. Good. He continues. Yet, just one in four adults believes in absolute moral truth. What happened here? In fact, less than half of those who call themselves born-again Christians believe that anything is absolutely true. This, this mental disconnect comes from what Barna calls America's evolving values. Quote, Our culture's embrace of moral relativism has led to an abandonment of traditional values, including loyalty, morality, accountability, and sacrifice. Most distressing is the fact that the church seems to be right in line with today's evolving values. People's church preferences frequently line up with their relativistic approach to life. Americans often do not join churches these days. They attend churches based on how far they have to drive, the convenience of the worship schedule, the kinds of emotional experiences they can enjoy, whether or not the sermon is upbeat and interesting. Now, none of those reasons, I'm quoting, is inherently bad, but all too often people are choosing their church without regard for doctrinal purity or reliable teaching. Convenience, comfort, emotion tend to be the values that drive today's spirituality. Accordingly... I'm almost done. This is still Barna. Accordingly, Christians are increasingly indistinguishable from their non-Christian friends. A recent study of 65 common values and traits shows that the values of today's born-again Christians are not substantially different from any other segment of society. They know stuff. You see what we're talking about here? But they're not choosing. They're not exercising strength to push their lives in the direction of their convictions. Those are scary words. You might not realize it right away, but George Barna and King David were actually talking about the very same problem. I mean... Christians become the way Barna describes when they know the truth with their heads but don't choose the truth with their wills. This is what made David pray that everything within him, let everything within me, bless your name. So understanding must be backed by the will. Secondly, the will must enforce the prompting of the conscience. Now, of course, I'm talking about a scripturally informed, sensitive conscience that hasn't yet been hardened by repeated disobedience. You can, you can shut up your conscience. It's not hard. Everything successful in the Christian life hinges on the ability to not yield to sinful inclinations. We are all creatures of passions, reflexes, desires... They make up a part of that all that is within us. No one can consistently avoid feeling the pull of sinful desire. No one. They live in us. 
So, here we sit. We want every part of our lives to glorify God. Let everything be united in that direction. So that means these desires have to be dealt with in some way. They're not going away until Jesus comes back. God has made provision for this. What God has done, by his Holy Spirit, he has placed a a moral counterweight in each one of us to pull us, at least initially, in the opposite direction of desires that appear satisfying but will ultimately be self-destructive. That's God's grace. His common grace. He's placed that moral counterweight to let us know when a desire that, that pulls in a way that seems appealing and without this moral counterweight, this conscience, this voice, without that, we, we would probably give in even more quickly. But here's the important point. A small, hesitant, tentative decision to renounce, to listen to conscience and renounce a wicked desire. A small, hesitant, tentative decision will never be effective. I mean, it's sadly not enough that your conscience hates sin. Your will must hate it too. Your conscience does not have the power to fight off sin by itself for very long. It will just give the initial prompt. But it waits for something else to join in and give it weight. That is your choice. Conscience waits for your will to come and back up what it's showing you. Jesus made some really drastic statements about how earnest the will must be in turning from sin. Do you have the Matthew 18, 8 and 9 reference in your notes? Let's read it aloud, okay? And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so you read and the debate rages. What on earth can Jesus mean? People seem shocked that he said that. Did he actually want us to be physically carving up our bodies? Is that what Jesus wanted? And if not, then what? I'm not sure Jesus meant for us to be just lopping off limbs. But here's what ought to be clear to everyone. Jesus is surely saying that you and I won't be able to resist sin with small, breezy, casual decisions. He is surely saying that. Agreed? Surely he's saying that. 
a big part of victory over specific sins. Everybody hates sin in general. I'm not talking about that. I mean a specific sin that feels delightful when indulged in. Jesus is saying that victory over a sin like that, if you're going to make any decision to defeat it, it has to be a big decision. It has to be a drastic decision. It has to be a committed decision. When I was a kid, I used to have a book. I wore it out. Uh, it was uh, written on a, at a, on a kid's level, but it was uh, an American history thing, and it was all about uh, the Civil War, and uh, there would be pictures, drawings, of course, not picture pictures, but drawings, and all the details of the Civil War. And I used to love... Four boys in the Horbin household. Four boys, my dad and my poor mother. You all agreed. You all just, yeah. like. And we would look at this book. And even when I was little, my older brothers would read it to me. And we loved, we loved those gory details of those wounded soldiers and how they would get them drunk and then with a hot knife they would cut through the infected flesh and then they'd have to get the the, the saw and you'd saw through the bones. And that's how they, there, that that was your hospital. Whatever else you say about that practice... You don't make a decision to cut off a hand or a foot lightly because it's not growing back. When it's gone, it's gone. There's no turning back in the process. It's a big step. And I know now, after 40 or so years of pastoring, I know now that whenever I counsel people and they tell me they're thinking about quitting some specific sin or they're considering breaking off with a sinful relationship or they're praying about their addiction to pornography whenever I start to hear that conversation I know they're never going to make it because you don't get out of sins like that with a little lightweight decision I'm really considering this Pastor Don There's no gradual or delicate way to cut off an arm. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to make some decisions big and drastic or don't make them at all. You never gradually grow out of a besetting sin. To hate sin generally, that's easy. To hate sin when you see it in the media or on a global scale or in somebody else, that's easy to complain about the moral mess that we might be in. But Jesus makes the point that forsaking any specific sin in your life, that's a different story. It costs to turn from any specific sin. Listen to conscience, because that conscience cannot pull you out of sin all by itself. It's God's voice that speaks, and it awaits your will to join in and make a big decision. The quicker you make it, the greater the chance of victory. The slower you make it, the less the chance of victory. The secret to victory is to have your whole being, that all that is within me moving toward the same target. When your conscience is faithful, 
putting the light on some specific sin, make sure that your decision is just as faithful and specific. Thirdly, I'm almost done. Thoughts. Thoughts must be governed by purity. Your thoughts make up a huge part of all that is within you. I can act out. I can, I can preach sermons. But you don't know what my thought life is like. Because you can't see in there. You can sing in the choir. You can be a pastor. You can be a board member. To profess pure devotion with a dirty mind is like trying to smuggle a gun onto an airplane. Holiness of mind is so desirable, but, but there's a huge problem. Because nobody else on earth sees my thoughts, there's very little external pressure to keep them clean. When, when, you, when I talk about clean thoughts, please understand, our minds immediately go in a certain direction to maybe dirty thoughts or sexual thoughts. That's a part. Thoughts of pride. Thoughts of arrogance. Unteachable thoughts. Greedy thoughts. All those kinds of things. There's, the problem is there's very little external pressure. I, I can keep my life out of certain sins with no holiness behind the purity at all simply because I don't want to be caught in a situation where my reputation is ruined. That's just pride keeping my life safe. You see the difference? I can avoid certain sins not because I love Jesus but simply because I don't want to tarnish my image. You have friends in this church. What would they think? That in itself can help keep your life a bit on the straight and narrow, but it won't affect your thoughts because you and I both know no one's ever going to find out. If you keep your thoughts clean, the only motive is, I love Jesus. They might be the best indicator of your spiritual life, what goes on up here. It's part of all that is within me. Let all that is within me bless your holy name. This is what Jesus meant, by the way, when he said, if you, if you want to clean this cup, this is full of water, so I'm being careful. If you want to clean the cup, he, he said, you, you clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside of the cup. He actually says, you clean the inside and the outside will be clean also. So he's not, obviously that doesn't apply to porcelain. But what he's saying is, when, when, you, when, you're trying to, when you're trying to clean your life, when you want all that is within you moving in the right direction, there is a place to start, and it's, it's in here, the thoughts, the motives. I hope, I hope you can see the principle in these three examples. Will, conscience, mind. 
making sure that the heart is unanimous in its choice to honor the Lord. Anyone, anyone can whip up a neat feeling in a church service for a moment or two. But, oh God, what we want is every part of our being, the part people see, the part that only you know about, let it all have unanimity. All that is within me, bless his holy name. And that, church, is how you keep your heart from wandering from God.